Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.4. Late is the hour at which this space wizard chooses to appear. Last time, we had a shouting match with Jedi Master Atrus, enjoyed some time with Dark Nihilus, and listened to Kreia lecture on why you shouldn't give change to beggars. In this episode, we explore the vast urban hellscape that is Nar Shaddaa, awaken Ratan Atten Rand to the Force, and find out that the Republic only has about 30 days left before collapse. No pressure. I'm Luke. That's Kelsey. There's always a bit of truth in Legends. Uh, podcast business Uh, this podcast business stuff is starting to become a problem we're starting to have to do it all the time um real quick there won't be a new episode next week as i'm going on vacation for the first time in many many years um and now kelsey has some drone talk of all things sure so um in my day job i am a reporter on drones and other things um and it's the uh disney world is uh, rumored to be bringing um, uh, SUV-sized X-wing drones to the Galaxy's Edge part of the park. Um, it would be uh, strange. I mean, not that strange, right? Disney loves spectacle. X-wings are uh, super iconic. It fits into all of it. Um, X-wing though is a weird shape for a drone. Um, as I covered um, in my previous life as a all things drone reporter at Popular Science, people have been sort of craft brewing their X-wing drones for years, um, and as you've probably seen too, we've gotten like official toy ones at shops. The easiest way to make a small drone or a simple drone is you do a quadcopter, right? That's four rotors and like a like a helicopter that uh, was halfway through um, mitosis. But uh, with the X-wing shape is not super aerodynamic um unless you're going very fast um would disney want to be putting a big fixed wing drone with uh, some weird aerodynamics over its things unlikely so probably what we are going to get is a quadcopter uh dressed up to look like an x-wing with a fancy body um and then a bunch of lights and spectacle and it won't matter because it'll be like x-wings flying overhead which is cool and unlike the experience of being a uh, strafed by attack craft or uh, targeted by drones um there are many ways to experience drones and at disney world is probably the least awful um i will uh, be following this because it is delightful um and extremely on my beat and i figure you all want to hear more about drones so as i know more i will tell you more but that's it for the drone corner thank you i uh, don't know anything about drones except uh they're um, they're bad, and if Disney is uh, <laughs> is the is the most uh, ethical use of a drone, yeah, that's uh, that's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. All right, let's do this shit. Nuts of the Old Republic Two Part Four, Nar Shaddaa. When we last left our companions, they were getting acquainted with the back alleys, seedy clubs, and hovels that cover the refugee sector of Nar Shaddaa. Mitrasuric, Baldur, and Kreia barely made it away from the ship before they found trouble. 
In a grievous breach of etiquette, the XL gave a beggar a few credits to get loaded because being homeless is terrible and we're not here to judge. Craya, however, was very much there to judge, and she harshly criticized Surik for showing compassion because someone else beat the beggar up for the change. Somehow this is the XL's fault, and she loses favor with Kraya over a totally innocuous gesture. The XL then gives another beggar change in exchange for information which is acceptable to Kraya because it benefited the XL and the companions directly. Sirik asks the man if he's seen any Jedi Masters wandering about, and of course he hasn't because who would even notice or be able to tell that on sight? Regardless of the stupidity of that question... The information still bears fruit because the beggar told a bounty hunter named Mira that a strange woman was asking about a Jedi Master named Zezkael. This time we will explore the massive amount of content on Nar Shaddaa. The map is situated with a seemingly bottomless pit as the central hub, with different districts and areas shooting off in every direction. Uh, before we start again, we're getting a new companion because Cray is a jerk. Actually, we're just switching it up as we would normally. That was just a convenient excuse. We'll switch Kraya out for Atten Rand and be on our way. Almost immediately, another cutscene begins with... Two exchange thugs harassing some poor soul who owes them money. The exile has the option to intervene or let the thugs kill the man, so she obviously intervenes. Cirque stays with the light and convinces the thugs to leave using a Jedi mind trick, but a dark side exile can have some fun by using force persuasion to get the two goons to jump down the bottomless pit instead of getting her hands dirty. We would never do something so evil, obviously, but the option exists. Atten is pleased by Surik's light side reaction, saying that the Jedi Code is still alive and well. This would normally be a smooth transition to a new topic, but instead, Kraya is going to bother us, even though we left her behind so she stopped doing that. The force bond between Kraya and Mitra is quite strong and has a number of benefits in addition to the downside that if one dies, the other will also die. Anytime you die in KOTOR 2, just remember that Kraya also dropped dead at the same time, which is really morbidly funny. The bond allows Kraya to speak with the exile over great distances, though it only happens sparingly. In this case, she's actually helpful. The exile is just now reconnecting to the Force and learning to hear its call again. Nar Shaddaa is filled with so many beings that the Force hums all around them with the thoughts and desires and fears of billions of individuals. Surik is hearing and feeling the echo that those thoughts create in the Force, and she wants to heal their anger and desperation. Kraya, of course, scoffs at such a notion, believing you might as well try and heal the universe, because that's going to do the same amount of good. Instead, our wise and sage master teaches us a little more about her manipulative ways. Kraya states that manipulation is healing, and in a sense, she's not wrong. Though she's also morally dubious on her best day, so we'll take this advice with many, many grains of salt. Maybe maybe a salt mine. She encourages Mitra Surik to manipulate individuals and small events to create better outcomes in the future. Finally, Kraya says that the greatest victories are not manipulations, but bringing others around to the truth of what you believe. Essentially, Kraya wants Surik to use small manipulations to push events toward a preferable outcome that has been predetermined by the Force. It's the butterfly effect of manipulation, and perhaps unknowingly, 
Kaya is starting to show her hand a little. She wants the greatest victory for herself. She wants to bring the exile to her side. As we've said, Narshida is, is huge. It's close to Telos Four in terms of sheer size and has even more side quests and random interactions. It's easy to get lost and there is a lot of backtracking, so we're going to outline the probably more than nine-step plan to find Jedi Masters as Kyle and escape. The first uh, step is to gain enough influence or infamy with the exchange to get a meeting. This is where most of the side quests are going to take place and be completed. Eventually, Sirik will accrue enough of a reputation with the exchange to trigger an invasion of the Ebon Hawk by the Red Eclipse Slaver Organization. After their defeat, Sirik receives an invite to meet with Viscus, uh, Viscus a high-level crime lord in the exchange alone. However, before that, the exile will be ambushed and drugged into unconsciousness by a bounty hunter named Mira. Then Atten will have a solo encounter with a pair of twin Twi'lek bounty hunters called the Twin Sons in a cantina. Then Mira will infiltrate the Jekjektar cantina and attempt to take down Viscus in the exchange herself, only to be captured. Major Sirk will wake up unharmed a short time later and enter the Jekjektar cantina to rescue Mira. Sirk enters the cantina and makes her way through the tunnels below, freeing the human bounty hunter and undermining exchange operations. During the rescue, Sirk will be captured by the exchange and taken to Godo's yacht that constantly orbits Nar Shaddaa and is nearly impossible to track. Luckily for the exile, her companions will do the nigh impossible and stage a daring rescue aboard Goto's yacht. Lastly, the exile gets to meet with Masters as Kyle. He will agree to go to Dantooine, but he tasks Sirik with saving Mira. Uh, sorry. He will agree to go to Dantooine. From there, the exile can't immediately leave the smuggler's moon as Darth Nihilus' shadow hand, Visus Mar, has boarded the ship to capture Sirik. After Mar has defeated, the exile and her companions can finally depart for Onderon and Duxun. That's a hell of a lot of content. We're going to try and finish it all this episode. But spoiler, we're not going to. Character profile, Mira. Born in 3974 BBY on Nar Mira is a human female who is liberated from slavery by the Mandalorians early in the Mandalorian Wars. As the Mandalorians were wont, all freed people received the choice of joining the cause or being sold into slavery. Children were simply indoctrinated into Mandalorian culture and code. Now choosing between joining a life of slavery or a life in nomadic warmongering religion isn't a real choice, but it does show us the other side of the Mandalorians. Yes, they spread death and destruction, but they also liberated many people from slavery and oppression. So it's easy to see why they would have had popular backing on certain worlds in the Outer Rim. Mira sees the Mandalorians less as ravenous predators, but as her people. For years, she was trained in their code, and she came to be an excellent hunter, fighter, and survivor. Mira was a Mandalorian neo-crusader, but her people were crushed at Melkor five when Mira was only 14. The young Mandalorian was once again forced to find a way to survive in an uncaring galaxy. Mira became a bounty hunter on Nar Shaddaa some time after Malachor V, taking dangerous jobs to get by. Despite her short stature, Mira became one of the best bounty hunters around. Using an unorthodox strategy, Mira insisted on capturing her targets because, in her belief, 
every bounty could be completed without casualties. She didn't have to kill her targets, but only rarely and with regret. Her success drew jealousy, and a Wookiee bounty hunter named Hanhar was hired to kill Mira, but she outsmarted her foe, nearly killing him in the process. Mira took pity on Har Har Hanhar, sorry, um, and saved his life without knowing that this would incur a life debt. Mira told Hanhar to forget the life debt, but the Wookiee wouldn't, and he eventually began stalking Mira. Just before the Ebon Hawk arrived in 3951, Jedi Master Zez Kael sought Mira out and hired her to watch over Mitra Surik and defend her life if necessary. If the exile is aligned with the light side, Mira will join as a party member. Mira is Force-sensitive and can be trained as a Jedi Sentinel by Surik. So many Force-sensitives around. As we embark on part one of this master plan, it dawns on us that we have no idea how to gain notoriety with the exchange. Probably should just aimlessly wander around until we can complete enough odd jobs and meet enough NPCs that we trigger a cutscene or something. We'll start with the folks surrounding the near bottomless pit, then move to the other areas around the map. The hub around the pit is actually called the Refugee Landing Pad. Goodness gracious, Refugee Landing Pad. But it's more fun to keep finding ways to say the pit is almost bottomless. Anyway, there are three merchants surrounding the pit, one of whom will actually help further... Uh, Further the story, but has terrible merchandise until the end of the game. The good merchant, a Rodian named Gita, is in a heated turf war with a Duro named Undar, I guess. The not-so-good merchant who has much better merchandise at this stage in the game. Smart way to play this is by talking to Undar first and buying whatever he's selling that might interest you then accept his quest to get rid of the competition for a discount the exile can then go to gita side with her to get the same discount and tell her of undar's plan this will force undar to leave the refugee sector on nar Shaddaa and earn some loyalty from gita for the future next up is an aqualus Aqualish merchant who specializes in droid parts named Coden. Here, Sarek obtains the third of four parts required to bring HK-47 back online, but Coden also has an astromech droid named IT-31 that he retrieved from one of the local junk piles that litter the refugee landing pad. As the companions keep moving, they meet an old, nearly blind Sullustan, inventor and mechanic who has excellent hearing named Tin tub. This seems to be a clear reference to the Sulistan Nub, who helped Lando Calrissian pilot the Millennium Falcon uh, during the Battle of Endor and Return of the Jedi. Tian Tub also has a droid assistant named TT32, who asked the companions to find a droid called IT31, which was accidentally misplaced by the blind Sulistan. Luckily, we know where IT-31 is because we already talked to Coden. The Aqualus merchant wants 500 credits for the droid he found, but an exile can haggle the price down to 300 or 100, and the dark side exile can get it for free with threats and intimidation. Coden will ask if the exile wishes to sell T3M4, but we would never do that to T3. Sirk probably paid the nice trader 500 credits and returned it to TT32 and Teen Tob. Her reward is a prototype droid shield that has unlimited uses, as opposed to the 10 uses that most personal shields in the game have. In the restored content mod, we find that Teen Tub fought beside Baudur during the Mandalorian Wars, and the two have a brief and friendly catch-up. 
we'll be returning to TeamTab to get him to duplicate transponder codes for the Ebonhawk later. Elsewhere, around the very, very deep pit, the companions meet a Trandoshan bounty hunter named Vosk, who is ready to gossip about everyone in the bounty hunter's guild. Vosk left the guild because the exchange began bringing in new mercs who had no respect for the bounty hunter's creed, which was usually considered sacred within the guild. Surik asked how to get more notoriety with the exchange, and Vosk suggested taking on some of the bounty hunters directly to remove enemies and game infamy. He also breaks down the mercs hunting Surik. Most of them aren't worth a damn, but there are a trio of HK-50s, a Twi'lek duo named the Twin Sons, a giant Wookiee named Hanhar, and the best of the bunch, a 20-something human female named Mira. That's the same Mira who we saw talking to the beggar earlier. She has short red hair and dresses in revealing clothing. In typical video game fashion, this is explained as a way to throw off male bounty hunters and targets. If this were a Bioware RPG, Mira would be a male exile's love interest, but since this is an Obsidian game and Chris Avalon, admittedly, doesn't really write romances in his games, it's not that. It's so toned down in KOTOR 2 that Zurich doesn't romance anyone, despite Aton's hopes. There's a sweep track, uh, which actually has a couple of decent side quests attached for once. We know some of you love sweep racing in the games, but it's really hard to make a 30 second run on a floating motorcycle sound interesting since it's fairly easy to dodge the obstacles and the times aren't usually that hard to beat. Except at this sweep track, which is owned by a male Twi'lek named Lupo Shar. In order to get out from under debts he owed to the exchange, Lupo had Coden build him an unbeatable droid pilot named C9T9GE3. Uh, since there were no rules against droid pilots, no one could interfere due to rules about le legitimate businesses created and enforced by the exchange. Lupo beat the exchange at their own extortion game, and he made good credits for a little while until it all dried up and he had no more customers. No one wanted to bet or race against an unbeatable opponent. Uh, fortunately, a Twi'lek named Borna Liss has an idea to solve their problems. The exile can reprogram the droid to explode, which will cause Lupo to sell the track to Borna, who can bring customers in without, without the rigged but somehow legal races. The quest isn't terribly difficult since it involves going up to the droid's cage, using one of Cirque's skills like repair or intelligence to reprogram C9 to think it was losing a race, and trigger the droid's self-destruct mechanism. Just like that, C9 blows up inside his force cage, and Lupo immediately sells the place to Borna Liss to get off Nar Shaddaa before the exchange found out he was no longer the owner of the legitimate business. Borna gave the companions a cut, and the exile gained a little notoriety with the exchange. Before we move on to a new area, the exile is approached by Ratran Vec, a human who claims to be the original owner of the Ebon Hawk. Vec says it was stolen just before the end of the Mandalorian Wars, and he then gives some secret details about the ship to try and prove his claim. He knew that the ship's transponder code and its two hidden compartments, one of which was the place where Revan got lost in the Ricotta mine box. Sarek blows Vec off, but he'll be back the next time we return to the Ebon Hawk. That pretty much exhausts the refugee landing bed, so next let's head to refugee housing. As we've alluded to a few times, the refugee crisis was 
untenable following the Mandalorian Wars, Jedi Civil War, and Sith Civil War. Turns out, man, Forever War is not great. Refugees packed into tenements like those on Nar Shaddaa, which were nothing more than shipping containers piled on top of one another. By 3951, the moon held thousands of refugee tenements like the one in KOTOR 2, with refugees densely packed into housing areas and shady individuals looking to exploit them. The housing sector Mitrasurik visits is hemmed in by the exchange on one side and a large group of veterans of the Battle of Sirocco on the other. Saquesh, one of Viscus's lieutenants in the exchange, wanted to sell the refugees into slavery and used any excuse to do so. The Sirocco vets are surly assholes who mostly wanted to be left alone, though they had started to squeeze the refugees recently. The refugees stuck in the middle lacked basic necessities like medicine in addition to their inability to find work. They can't flee because of two exchange thugs who guard the exit, though the companions make short work of them on the way in. The refugees are led by an elderly human male known as Husef, who gives Surik the rundown on the appalling situation. Husef knows the refugees personally and cares for them deeply. The refugees, in true RPG fashion, have a ton of side quests for the exile, though most cannot be completed until later. There's Gariel, a human who supposedly has a highly contagious illness, but actually has a minor ailment. Surik can use her healing powers to immediately help Gariel. He rewards the exile by giving her the second part of her lightsaber after she received the first from the Athorians on Citadel Station. Nearby, a woman named Aida looks for her husband, a man named Lutra, who is stuck in the docks. Nada is grieving because Sequest took her daughter, Adana, after Nada missed some payments to the exchange. Elsewhere, Odis, a pilot, is looking for work and a woman named Karana seeks passage off Narshada. The Exile, of course, accepts all these side quests. Before we visit the Sorakovits or Sakesh in the exchange, we're going to send Atten back to the ship so we can progress his companion loyalty quest. That sounds counterintuitive, but he needs to be gone so that Surik will be approached by two concerned Twi'leks to warn her that Atten Rand is not who he says he is. They say he can't be trusted, that his real name isn't Atten, and that he's a tried and true killer, which is the second past the second time his murderous past has been mentioned. Once the Twi'leks depart, we can add Rand back to the party to sort this out. Mitra Surik confronts Atten about his past, and we start to learn a little about the Ace Pilots, about why the Ace Pilots hates the Jedi so damn much. He gets defensive about his past, saying he was a refugee from the Jedi Civil War who landed on Nar Shaddaa. Surik tries to defuse the situation, but Rand is already worked up, so she decides to just let him get it all out at once. After Atten drops his normal irony detached act, he begins to enumerate the sins and failures of the Jedi Order. Now step back for a moment and recall that KOTOR 2 was released in late 2004 prior to the completion of the prequel trilogy. You'll recall that before the prequels, abject denunciations of the Jedi were exceedingly rare, if any even existed, because the original trilogy treated the Order as an uh, as a, as honorable as, excuse me, I'm going to try this again, because the original trilogy treated them as an honorable order that was betrayed. There we go. <sighs> not the ring of easily duped stooges and war criminals we see in the prequels. At the time, anyone but the Sith treating the Jedi Order as contemptible was groundbreaking territory for Star Wars. 
whereas KOTOR 1 lightly roasted the Order for some of its failures, but largely absolved them by the end of the game, KOTOR 2 will pull no punches. This is also a good time to note just how drastically these companion loyalty missions differ from the ones we covered in KOTOR 1. They aren't even real missions so much as dialogue checks to see if the Exile has high enough influence to be trusted. And in the cases of Atten, Bowder, the Disciple... Uh, Brianna the Handmaiden and Mira completing these quests means Surik can train each in the ways of the Force. Atten's nowhere near done with his diatribe, however. He objects to Surik's prying, saying that he heard the stories about Surik during battles on Duxun and Malachor V, but never asked. At one point, Atten takes it too far, claiming that the Jedi who died at Malachor V when Surik ordered the activation of the Mass Shadow Generator deserved it. This clearly hurt Surik, and it was meant to. At least with the Sith, Rand says, their murder and treachery were out in the open, not some hidden secret behind an order of supposedly benevolent monks. Atten continues telling Surik that the Jedi have many lives to answer for. The charity of the Jedi is nothing more than a facade, and the Order is built upon lies. But Atten's not done yet. He's still got to get the heart of the problem for regular people in the galaxy. Quote, The Jedi, the Sith, you don't get it, do you? To the galaxy, they're the same thing. Just men and women with too much power, squabbling over religion while the rest of us burn. End quote. At this point, Surik can lash out at Adden or ask him about his past. Surik chooses option two, and Adden agrees to discuss it more since Surik has enough influence. Adden says that he used to serve the Republic, but was one of those who followed Revan and Malak into the Unknown Regions, and later swore fealty to the new Sith Empire. For Rand, it wasn't even a question as the Sith teachings had already filtered through even the rank-and-file soldiers, but also because at least these supposedly evil Sith had come to protect the Outer Rim when it was needed. They didn't sit in their ivory towers on Coruscant waiting for the Mandalorian Wars to get close enough to do something. Trying to make the Exile understand, Atten asks Surik to remember all those deaths caused by the Mandalorians in the worlds they annihilated along the way. Worlds like Soroka, where the Mandalorians left today, world of glass craters, and Duro, where the Mandos rained down like fire, crushing the orbital cities and scorching the earth. If not for Revan, Malak, and Surik, the Republic would have fallen, and Atten doesn't care if it makes him a Sith. Rand isn't arguing that the Jedi and Sith are necessarily on the same moral footing. Uh, he simply decided that the devil you know is preferable to the devil you don't. Atten admits the Sith were murderous tyrants, but tyrants who helped seemed better than condescending priests and bureaucrats who didn't. Not only did he fight with the Sith, Ram became a member of a special forces team that was tasked with capturing and turning Jedi or killing them if need be. Atten knows many techniques for killing and capturing Jedi, such as injuring their Padawan first in order to take the Jedi's mind off the fight. Alternatively, you can just harm enough civilians until the Jedi comes to aid them and then spring your trap. Sarek is dumbfounded by all this because Atten just seemed like a goof who maybe made a couple mistakes along the way, not a hardened spec ops Jedi killer. He seems to also have a natural affinity for concealing his thoughts and presence from force users by putting up mental walls and focusing on strong emotions like lust. Yes, Atten hid himself from Jedi by being constantly horny. That is 
absolutely canon and that is absolutely in the game. Atten says there were hundreds of squads like his most trained at the Treyas Academy on Malachor V. Near the end of the Jedi Civil War, everything changed for Atten when he met a female Jedi who said she was captured trying to save him. She did. She never gave him her name, but she revealed Atten's force sensitivity to him, something none of the Sith or Dark Jedi could detect. She told Atten to flee uh, because when the Sith dis- discovered his secret, they would take him to one of the torture facilities and either break him or kill him. Atten had heard stories about disappearances of force sensitives, but his hatred of the Jedi proved too strong and he tortured the woman instead. With the Jedi near death, she reached out and awakened the Force in Atten. For a brief moment, Atten saw and felt the pain he was causing and how it reverberated through the Force. Disgusted, Rand killed the Jedi for making him feel the Force, but instead of enjoying her, her death, he felt it through the Force and realized the error of his ways. In that moment, Atten realized he loved the Jedi that he had just killed, and it broke him. After that, he fled the exile, or he fled the Sith, and lived as a smuggler under an assumed name until meeting the exile on Citadel Station. Atten asks Sarek to train him in the ways of the Force, so maybe he can make amends. Sarek sees Atten's shame at his actions and awakens the Force training the pilot as a Jedi Sentinel. Unfortunately, we don't have any lightsabers to dole out yet, but we will soon enough. Now that Surik has had a heart-to-heart with Atten and started training him as a Jedi in the center of the refugee housing area, it's time to move on. They won't all be that long. Atten's just got a lot of baggage. The first stop is to visit the Sirocco vets. This is the first mention we get of Sirocco, and at the time, we didn't know anything about it except that Mitra Sirocco was there in some capacity, and then a Mandalorian attack left it in an inhospitable wasteland pockmarked with glass craters. Later, the devastation of Sirocco was portrayed in the Days of Fear arc of the KOTOR comics. In 3963, the Mando fleet used nukes that bypassed Republic ships and shields to target the planet in an act of total war. Luckily, some quick thinking by then-failed Jedi Padawan Zane Carrick and our old buddy Karthanasi saved the lives of tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of beings on the planet. You can check that out in episode 4.2, Nuke It From Orbit, for more on those events. In KOTOR 2, there's a supposedly a way to get the Sirocco thugs to give the refugees some space without having to kill the group, but every combination of dialogue responses we give in-game just leads to a fight. Regardless, it seems that Sirk and their companions talk the Sirocco vets into backing off, though you can still get light side points if you ask them to move away, move back in the attack anyway. The next stop before moving on is to chat with Saquesh and his exchange. We already took out the two exchange guards at the door to the refugee sector, but they are basically freebie kills since no one is around to witness it. If the companions kill anyone else, they have to kill everyone in the exchange HQ. It's not terribly hard to do, but it's easier to negotiate with Sequish. Zurich tricks Sequish, another Corin, into backing off of the refugees by saying that Gariel's plague is spreading rapidly through the area. It's a lie, but it gets the job done, and the exchange leave the refugee sector altogether. 
Sarek also bargained for the release of Adana to her mother, fulfilling one of the refugee side quests. The companions head to the docks next, and this is where the, everything picks up. Upon moving into the area, we see a cutscene between the local hut crime lord Vaga and the Wookiee b- bounty hunter Hanhar. I like Har Har better. It was funny. Uh, we find out that Hanhar is working both sides as he has been hired by Vaga to kill Goto and is working for Goto and the exchange at the same time. Vaga threatens to give the contract to Mira if Hanhar doesn't deliver results and the cutscene ends. The first thing the exile does is go speak to Fossa, who runs the docks even though all of Vaga's ships are currently grounded. Fossa talks like a toy Darian and even has the same voice actor as Watto, but is a Twi'lek for some reason. It's unknown why this change or mistake was made in the first place especially since Quello is a toy Darian and we already met him on the same map. Regardless, Fossa also needs help with the warning pylon lights on the docks, which requires Surik to complete a quick puzzle that we won't trouble you with. The exile pairs the power of each of the three dock pylons. Uh, the exile repairs the power of each of the three dock pylons, earning Fossa's gratitude and notoriety of the exchange for, with the exchange for working with the huts. Once this is done, we get another cutscene, this time showing Mira spying on the companions from across the docks. She's approached from behind by Hanhar, telling him to stop trying to steal her bounties. Instead, Hanhar threatens Mira's life and picks her up by the throat, dangling her over a ledge while choking her. The only reason Hanhar doesn't kill her at the moment is because of the bounty hunter truce that Goto strictly enforces. Bounty, bounty hunters can attack one another on Nar Shaddaa. Hanhar says that Mira tricked him into a life debt, but Mira claims to not even want the damn thing. Eventually, Hanhar puts Mira down, but threatens to kill her later. There are there are also a few people temporarily... Goodness gracious. There are also a few people living temporarily near the docks, and they have side quests for the exile. Uh, La Savu is a... Lavasu is an Athorian who needs some debt forgiven by Fossa. There's a Bith scientist who needs something from Doc Pylon 3, some Aqualish thugs, and Lutra, Ada's husband. With the path to the refugees clear, Lutra is free to go to Ada, and the two are happily reunited. Character profile Hanhar. Hanhar is an interesting character for a few reasons, not the least of which is that we very rarely see evil Wookiees in Star Wars. If the player is dark side when going to Nar Shaddaa, Hanhar will join the party as a playable companion instead of Mira. Hanhar also switches up the life debt dynamic, showing a Wookiee who is mentally burdened by swearing it and twists those feelings into hatred of those he serves. Unfortunately for Hanhar fans everywhere, we're doing a light side run, so we won't become well acquainted with him. The Wookiee Hanhar was born on Kashyyyk in an unknown year, lived with his tribe, but became enamored with the Shadowlands, spending much time there killing and hunting as he pleased. However, living in the Shadowlands is a taboo amongst the Wookiee and frowned upon, thus Hanhar was exiled from his tribe when they wouldn't let him return. They also didn't like all that murdering he did. Later, when Circa arrived on Kashyyyk, they began infiltrating Wookiee tribes as friendly faces, but Hanhar, who watched from afar, knew that his tribe would soon be enslaved by human predators. 
Knowing this, Handhar did the only reasonable thing he could think of. He murdered every member of his tribe to stop them from being taken into slavery. Kill everyone is a normal way of helping people, right? In the process, Handhar was captured by circus slavers, though he killed them all in transit to Narshada. On the smuggler's moon, Handhar became a bounty hunter and eventually saw a human named Mira who outsmarted him and nearly killed him. Mira saved Hanhar. Not knowing about the life debt, the last vestige of tradition Hanhar held to his tribe on Kashik. Hanhar thought life debts were awful and made Wookiees into slaves, which isn't wrong in many cases, but he also didn't have to swear the life debt. Mira didn't want it and begged him not to. Hanhar's mental instability became worse, and he believed that killing Mira was the only way to be free of his life debt. In 3951, just before Mitrasur arrived, Hanhar was hired by Voga the Hutt to kill the crime lord Godo. Now it's finally time for the Exile and Vaga to meet. They have mutual interest. Vaga's operations have been completely derailed by Godo in the exchange. Godo undercut Vaga and has hijacked so many of the Hutt's freighters that Vasa has to keep them all in dock. Vaga is trying every avenue to remove Goto, including bribing exchange bigwig Viscous and, hire, and hiring bounty hunters. None of that has proven successful so far. The exile knows that Vaga is opposed to the exchange, so working with him means more infamy, but the hut also has access to vast, vast fuel reserves from the hut world, Slaheron. Surik agrees to ally with Vaga, who says he will provide the fuel after the exile takes down Goto. After the meeting ends, Surik tries to enter a cantina in the docks called the Jekjek Tar, but she's denied entry. The Jack Jack Tar isn't for humans. It's filled with noxious gas from the home, from that resembles the gases on the homeworlds of various species, such as Gand, Twi'lek, and Weequay. Humans are welcome to enter, but they'll die within seconds for the trouble without gas mask or uh, hazmat suits. We'll definitely be back to the Jack Jack Tar soon, though. Next, there's a cutscene that indicates we've done enough to draw the attention of the exchange. Ratran Vec, the man who confronted the companions earlier, claiming to own the ship, is seen sneaking aboard, but he's about to be in some real trouble. Some Red Eclipse mercs are pretty angry about us stealing their parking spot, and so they storm the ship, ready to take whoever owns the thing. This cutscene means we've, we've achieved enough notoriety with the exchange. Maybe I can stop writing that so many damn times. We still have to visit the Entertainment District, which is interesting, if only for the droid who's addicted to, gam to gambling on Pazak, named S4C8. Surik can reprogram the droid to fix rogue programming, that was causing her to habitually play his Pazak, despite losing pretty much every time. S4 is one of three players Surik has to beat in Pazak if she wants to face the champ. The champ is a Ch Chadrafan, a small rodent-like species covered in fur with faces that resemble bats. Surik is able to defeat the champ, winning his unbeatable tiebreaker Pazak card. From here, things begin to pick up steam. Finally, the companions can move on to part two of this giant convoluted plan. Don't worry, the rest of it won't take so long since we don't have to introduce a bunch of NPCs in different locations again. The companions make their way back toward the refugee landing pad and find the Ibon Hawk guarded by a number of Red Eclipse members. They aren't much of a challenge and they all die as a result. Inside the ship, the situation is a little different. 
There are between 15 to 20 enemies inside, and they all f if they all fire simultaneously, you can die pretty quick. However, that many goons all packed inside a light freighter is also a recipe for hucking grenades at them. With the Red Eclipse mostly taken care of by grenade spamming, all that's left is to speak with their leader, Kamakt, who stands over the dead body of Ratran Vek. Kamakt, a Trandoshan, says that Vek was was killed trying to steal the ship and that the exile is next. Normally this would all be bluster, but Kamakt tanks everything and has more health than the three companions combined. He still dies, but it's a bit more difficult than most of the fights in the game because he withstands so much damage. There are a few pieces of cut content leading up to the fight that explain what happened in the lead-up. As the slavers approached the ship, Krya sensed it and knocked all the companions unconscious, then the Red Eclipse boarded, and finally Vec tried to reclaim the ship, but just had the worst timing. Now that we've cleared the hawk, it's time for the invitation from Visquis. This comes via a bugged cutscene that is supposed to trigger when the exile leaves the ship after taking out the Red Eclipse, but it can occur anywhere on Nar Shada. Within the cutscene, we see the companions gather around a hollow of Visquis, who invites the exile to meet him in the Jek Jek Tar Cantina alone. It's obviously a trap, but we don't have much choice. Besides, you can make a trap work to your advantage if you know it's coming. Thus, Mitra Surik sets off alone for the Jek Jek Tar while the companions wait. See, we told you things started to move quicker. We're already on part four of the plan, but are interrupted by a cutscene. Atten runs to catch up with the exile, giving her a few stim packs and telling her he's worried. Sarek has a large hazmat suit to wear into the cantina, but Rand doesn't want to take any chances. After this nice little moment, Atten goes off to the cantina that isn't filled with no noxious spaceship runoff in the entertainment promenade to wait. As Sarek moves on, she is confronted in the hallway by the bounty hunter Mira, who warns the exile she's walking into a trap and of a bigger fight brewing. Everyone knows about the Exiles meeting with Viscous, which means that the Bounty Hunter Truce will soon be called off, turning the entire refugee sector into a shooting gallery. Worse yet, Mitra's companions are in danger. The cutscene immediately switches to the Normie bar, where Atten is enjoying a nice drink. He's confronted by the twin sons, bounty hunter, who are bounty hunters for the exchange. There's a brief back and forth, but it seems pretty clear that Atten was prepared for this since he's ready to draw down immediately. Once the dialogue ends, the player takes control of Atten. This is, again, one of the more difficult fights in the game, simply because it's in a confined space. The easiest method to beat them is either to run behind the bar and fire on them, since they use swords, uh, though they will also throw grenades. The other way to handle them is to mine the hell out of the room and wait for the sisters to trip the mines after the fact. Either way, Atnran defeats the bounty hunters and runs to warn everyone on the Ebon Hawk. At the ship, Atten tells the assembled companions that the bounty hunter truce is over, but before they can even formulate, formulate a plan, they are waylaid. The Zug brothers, a trio of Duro bounty hunters, approach the ship and begin a monologue, which was stupid. Baldur, Baldur says they should have shot first and asked questions later, and the companions work together to kill the overwhelmed trio of Duros. The cutscene switches back to Mira and the Exile, who are now talking in one of Mira's safe houses at the docks. Surik knows she's walking into a trap with Viscous, but Mira wants to keep her out of the trap completely. To that end, Mira filled the room with toxins from the nearby shipyards. 
Anyone without olfactory blockers like Mira will be knocked unconscious by the noxious fumes. Leaving Surik in the safe house, Mira takes the hazmat suit and enters the Jekjektar under the player's control. Inside, the rooms are hazy from the fumes that cater to non-humans looking for atmospheres that resemble those of their home worlds. Visquis watches from a monitoring station elsewhere, believing the exile to, believe, to be in the space suit. Handhar is with Visquis and is preparing to capture the exile, then lie and wait for Goto. Mira makes it to Visquis, who can't tell humans apart, and she probably would have fooled him if Hanhar wasn't around. Mira now realizes that the Corrin is cutting Goto out of the deal for increased power on Nar Shada. Visquis made deals with Vaga the Hunter and with Vaga and Hanhar, and is attempting to capture a Jedi to draw Goto out of hiding. Hanhar is enraged, but Visquis tasers Mira unconscious to use her as bait for the exile. As the cutscene fades to black, we see an old, balding man standing over Surik in Mira's safe house. This is Jedi Master Zezkael. He lets Surik sleep, saying he has watched her actions since arriving on the Smuggler's Moon, and he's proud of her. Major Surik has done more to help the people of Nar Shaddaa in a few days than the Jedi Master has in an entire year there. Master El says, quote, Even in exile, you are more of a Jedi than I, end quote. He then says he's going to rescue Mira, but that's not true, because the next scene... So Surik waking up and making her way to the Jek Jektar to rescue Mira. We have no idea why Zezkael said he would go do it and then didn't follow through. Surik enters the Jek Jektar without an Enviro suit or breathing mask. So Visquis let the fumes do their work and Surik is nearly down for the count. Character profile. Jedi Master Zezkael. A human male of unknown age and origin, Zezkael is one of the more thoughtful members of the Jedi High Council on Coruscant. Uh, Zezkael served as a member of the Council from at least 3960 until 3951 and wielded a double-bladed purple lightsaber. We know very little background on him, but he is balding on the top of his head with a brown mullet in the back, a bushy handlebar mustache, and two earrings with dream catchers and long feathers. He really does look almost exactly like Diedrich Bader's character Lawrence from the movie Office Space, but with earrings and a little more balding. In 3959, Zezkael was present for the trial and sentencing of Mitra Surik. During the trial, Master El was cold and passed judgment on Surik, exiling her from the Order. After Surik returned her lightsaber and departed, however, Zezkai showed his introspective nature by questioning the Jedi Order's role in the fall of Revan and many others. He sounds even more contrived when he and the exile meet on Nar Shaddaa, but doesn't follow through on any of that introspection when the Masters reconvene on Dantooine. This is something that happens uh, with both Zezkael and Master Kavar on Onderon. Both sound genuinely remorseful for the way they treated Surik and seem to understand that the Jedi Order was flawed, but both will betray her in the end. Those bastards. Oh well, they will get what's coming to them. Master L served on the High Council until 3952 when the massacre of Qatar caused the order to disband. as Kyle traveled to Nar Shadda to get lost in the crush of humanity. Just like all the Masters Surik encounters, Zezkael will teach her a lightsaber combat and combat form and a force form. Due to her innate force talent for forming force bonds, Surik is able to learn skills from other Jedi at a rapid rate. That sounds very similar to someone else that is currently in the movies. 
I'm talking about Ray. I don't know why I said it so awkwardly. To be sure, this is a convenient narrative device to explain how Sarek learns a new lightsaber form in 30 seconds, but that's just the reality we have to accept. There are seven lightsaber forms and four force forms in the game, all of which we will discuss at some point during this adventure. It also sounds a little bit like a uh, device borrowed from... um, a certain cinematic franchise that was happening then and kind of faded from memory now, or not memory, but relevance now, but that's totally what Neo does, right? Like just uploading <laughs> new forms of combat. Oh shit. I never thought about that. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly what, what he does, what she does too. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. At the last moment, however, Kraya intervenes through their force bond to help the exile. She tells Sirik to control her breath and let trace amounts of air in, allowing the force to sustain her actions. Sirik picks up the skill quickly and is now proficient in breath control, which protects her from toxic environments, but only for a short time before it must be used again. Bisquis is impressed by the Jedi and decided to just let the cantina patrons handle the Jedi, but that's only a delay tactic. The patrons attack Surik and Mass, mobbing her in many places, though she's able to hack her way out. Unfortunately, Visquis and Hanhar fled to a secret underground bunker, causing Surik to follow into the maze of tunnels. Meanwhile, Visquis has placed Mira in a fighting ring and presents her to Hanhar as a reward for his patience. Visquis wants to see Hanhar rip someone in half, while Mira tries to look for an escape route. Being locked in a confined space with an angry Wookiee sounds like a suboptimal situation. Um, also, a major plot point in Solo. The good news is that Mira is a light stepper and won't set off the mines around the perimeter of the arena, which allows her to run Hanhar into them. The Wookiee has considerable health, but Mira only needs to whittle it down halfway to knock Hanhar unconscious. Then, Visquis unleashes a pack of calf hounds. Mira is able to kill them, but then she has to fight through a dozen of highly dangerous obese guards hired by Visquis to guard his underground lair. Obese hate the Republic and Jedi, blaming them for the destruction of their homeworld in an event that occurred many years earlier. The obese are tough and Mira is alone, so the best option is going stealth and moving past them to escape the tu- to the escape tunnel hatch. At this point, Visquis realizes that Mira has escaped and that the Jedi has entered the base. Sirik cuts or blasts her way through the obese defenders until she reaches Visquis, who reveals that he intends to betray Goto and keep the bounty for himself. It's apparently enough to buy a planet, so at least we're dangerous enough to merit such an enormous bounty. Visquis then floods the room with gas. Visquis has a good plan, but he never should have said it out loud or betrayed Goto in the first place. With the exile unconscious, Goto chimes in on the comm system. Visquis tries to beg for his life, but Goto has eyes everywhere and was prepared for the deception. Without hesitation, the obese mercs turn on Visquis and kill him while the exile's unconscious body is transferred to Goto's yacht. After this, another string of cutscenes begins... And we see Kreia rescue Hanhar and heal some of his wounds. Kreia requires Hanhar to swear a life debt 
or she will drive him even more mad with her force powers. Hanhar doesn't want another life debt, but Kreia isn't interested in the rest of Hanhar's life. Instead, Kreia wants the wiki to hunt down and kill Mira, or at least try to. Whether he succeeds or fails, Hanhar will be free of both life debts. Why does Kreia do this? It probably has something to do with Ichani philosophies about battle that boil down to the idiom, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In this way, Kraya can test Mira to see if she's worthy to go with the exile. However, this may be totally off base, given that we won't see Hanhar again until the very end of the game. The next cutscene shows Mira meeting at meeting with Atten to try and find a way to rescue the exile. Only Viscus knew how to contact Goto, but he's dead under the jet tar. Goto's ship is invisible and impossible to track, but in a stunning turn of events, Atten has a bright idea. Vaga's freighters are always hijacked, so if they can get one of the freighter transponder codes... It, it can trick Goto into inadvertently revealing himself by capturing the ship. The transponder codes are locked up tight in Vaga's warehouse, and it would be impossible to gain access unless you were a droid. The scene immediately cuts to a T3 being immediately cuts to T3 being led into Vaga's warehouse. This is T3's second time to shine after the tutorial when he saved the Ebon Hawk, the Exile, and Kreia. T3 is allowed inside after the champ vouches that he won the droid in a Pazak game and needs to offload it. Inside the warehouse is divided into two sections, with one being blocked by a particularly annoying protocol droid called C7E3. C7 is quite rude to droids that he believes to be inferior, including C6E3, another protocol droid who lost his job to C7. In order to access the transponder codes, we need access to the door that C7 is blocking. T3 knows just what to do, telling C7 he needs a memory wipe and goading him into a fight. T3 still has the overpowered unlimited shock arm, so we'll use that for a few more levels. With C7 out of the way, C6 comes over to the console and unlocks the big door. Remember, the player controls T3 and must choose his responses in dialogue without knowing what they really mean since they're just beeps and whistles. At this point, cut content was supposed to have the two droids we helped on Citadel Station show up in the warehouse. T3 and the astromech T1N1 were supposed to get into a fight that freed B4D4, who had been held hostage by T1 since they arrived. Maybe it was good this was cut. It's better to imagine that T1 and B4 lived a happy life together. Back in the game, T3 finally has access to the ship control area, which is where transponder codes are monitored and sent to a remote station. Through a series of beeps we don't understand, T3 is able to get a transponder code and blank transponder card from the ship control droid. If that seems too easy, that's because our little droid friend isn't out of danger just yet. A group of three HK-50 droids shows up and destroys C-6 before coming after T-3. This is probably the point when that shock arm is no longer overpowered and we need to use another weapon or just mine the area. T-3 draws the HK-50 droids in and is able to destroy them with a combination of shields, blaster fire, and those mines. T3 retrieves the final part needed to activate HK-47 from the HK-50s he destroyed. T3 didn't get a companion loyalty mission in KOTOR 1, but he's gotten two solo missions so far in this game. When T3 gets back to the safe house, we realize he undertook the mission to retrieve transponder codes of his own initiative while Atten and Mira were chatting.
Good job, T3. Only two companions can go on the mission, so we'll take Mira and T3 to rescue Mitra Surik. We make a quick stop by Tientub's shop, and the Celestin is happy to put an exchange transponder code on the blank card, or I'm sorry, a hut transponder code. With that in hand, the companions head off to the Ebon Hawk and take off. Almost immediately, Goto's ship materializes and catches the Hawk in its tractor beams. Goto's yacht is called the Vision is called Visionary, and it looks like a supersized version of the Cylon snub fighters from the new run of battles of the Battlestar Galactica series. It is easily twenty times the size of the Ebon Hawk, probably more. While the Ebon Hawk is captured, it's time for us to really meet Goto. Surik is on the ship, the ship's viewing platform, and is approached by a circular black droid that produces a hollow of Goto, the leader of the exchange. Goto gets down to business immediately, asking Sirk about her status as a Jedi before trying to offer her a job. This came as a shock to the Exile, since every two-bit bounty hunter and thug in, the quadru- in this quadrant of the galaxy has been trying to kill her. Goto apologizes, saying that his orders were misinterpreted and that he needs the Exile alive. Besides, if Sirk was a Jedi, she'd de- defeat the Assassins, and if she couldn't, she was of no use to Goto anyway. This is where we learn how fucked the Republic really is. In a word, the Galactic Republic is broken. It's no longer able to sustain or protect itself, and it can barely stand as is. Uh, to make matters worse, the destruction of Paragas seems to have set a catastrophic series of events into motion that will cause the old Republic to flaw, to fall. Goto continues, quote, in one standard month, the Republic will collapse, not due to war or secession, but because it lacks the infrastructure to support itself. It is unknown to all but a few, but the Republic lost the Jedi Civil War. At the time of their defeat, the Republic was on the brink of collapse, end quote. Goto also believes that something is actively killing off the Jedi and that the desolation of Qatar was a fatal strike against the Order. Uh, Sirik is dumbfounded. Why, why did Goto chase her all over the galaxy just to ask her to save it? Normally, we do Goto's character profile here, but Narshana just takes too long, so we will do that. That and me... Uh, me says Kyle and talk about the Exiles confrontation with Visa Samar all next episode. In the game, Goto isn't finished with his diatribe. When discussing the Jedi and Sith, he doesn't take sides, saying that the issue needs to be resolved so that the galaxy can be at peace for a time. Goto says, quote, It is simply important to me that the infighting amongst these Jedi religious branches be resolved so that the galaxy may be put back together. End quote. It's the third time we've heard someone say that the Jedi and Sith are warring sects of the same religion on Nar alone. No matter what the Jedi and Sith think of one another and their eternal holy war, it's clear that everyone from refugee beggars to pilots with shady pasts to all powerful crime lords see it as a struggle that only harms their interests and needs to end. When Sirik suggests... That Goto try Pazak instead of meddling in galactic politics, the crime lord says that Pazak is boring and too unpredictable. Instead, Goto prefers, quote, predictable games such as galactic economics, end quote. 
Goto then makes it abundantly clear that Zurich is the literal last line of defense against the fall of the Old Republic and the demise of the Jedi Order. To paraphrase Grima Wormtongue in Tolkien's The Two Towers, late is the hour at which this space wizard chooses to appear. Goto apologizes, quote, I am afraid a broken ex-Jedi is all I have to save the galaxy at the moment, end quote. Surik finally decides that if Gotu wants to save the Republic so badly, then their goals are aligned and agrees to work with him. Alarms suddenly ring out, indicating that Surik's companions have boarded the Visionary to attempt a daring prison break. Goto leaves the exile with multiple droid guards before departing. Now the game switches back to Mira and T3 at one of the ship's hatches. T3 slices the nearby terminal, downloading the overload program. Technically, this can be done by solving a puzzle written in binary, but there's no chance we're learning binary for this podcast. Prece- proceeding through the visionary requires the companions to gain a number of access override programs from down droids, which allow them to buy se- bypass security perimeters in some droids. Otherwise, it's mostly a running firefight uh, throughout the entire ship. Mira and T3 fight past probe droids with flamethrowers and a room with six large battle droids and three turrets. Luckily, T3 can short-circuit the turrets, causing them to fire on the droids and making this much easier. The next stop is Surik's cell, which also happens to contain the power distribution access code. Using this code, the companions can now go to the bridge and shut off the cloaking field on the ship, opening it up to fire from Goto's enemies. A brief cutscene a, br- a brief cutscene was cut that shows Goto ordering all the remaining bany- re- oh my god, remaining bounty hunters to fan out, find Surik, and capture her alive. The companions press on toward the bridge and run into a hallway of death that includes large battle droids, a handful of turrets, and about 10 mines. Instead of running into the death trap, T3 activates the mines from a control panel and Mira gets the battle droids to follow her, triggering all the mines and killing the big angry droids. Mira notes that the control panel is broadcasting droid control signals across the galaxy, but will but why would Goto be trying to control a large number of droids on a faraway world? No time to worry about that now because we've got a ship to blow up. On the bridge, the companions deactivate the ship's cloaking device and unlock the hatch to the Ebon Hawk. As soon as the ship decloaks, multiple enemy ships move into attack, which means we've got very little time to escape the visionary. Of course, it's a gauntlet run through a bunch of nameless thugs and a final duel with the twin sons. The companions carve a bloody swath through the bounty hunters on their way to the hatch. Once the trio climbs back, in the Ebon Hawk, another cutscene begins. The Hawk detaches from the Visionary and flies back down to Narshida as a group of hostile ships close in. The ships waste no time destroying the Visionary in a hail of cannon fire as the Ebon Hawk descends in the distance. On the Hawk, Mira says that Goto's death will destabilize crime in the entire sector and maybe even make Narshida a little safer for refugees and citizens alike. The group is surprised when one of Goto's circular droids appears on the ship. Goto tells the exile that the droid is a gift to help her on her quest to save the Republic and to ensure that his wishes are known. Surik suggests disabling the droid, but it has a fail-safe detonator with enough power to blow a chunk out of the planet, so that's a non-starter. Looks like we're stuck with this floating spherical black droid for the foreseeable future, and 
If you couldn't tell by now, the droid was actually Goto the entire time. Back on Nar this is normally where the Exo would have an extensive dialogue with Zazkael, but that will have to wait for next time. Instead, it's time to finish up all these side quests we left hanging. Sarah goes to Fossa the docks first. Fossa has work for the pilot Otis. Though Sarah can also get Otis work as a pilot for a ship called the Lunar Shadow. Currently, the Shadow has a crew and no pilot, but not either option completes the quest. Sarek also arranges for Lassifau's debt to Fossa to be forgiven, which means he can return to work as a pilot. With this done, the Exile can also arrange passage for the refugee Kahana, who is looking to flee the moon. Lassifau agreed to transport Kahana, but Sarek could tell the Athorian pilot was bluffing. In reality, Lassifau was planning to leave Kahana stranded in Dar but Sarek uses a Jedi mind trick to ensure that wouldn't happen. With that done, We've cleared out most of the side quest, and all that's left is to visit Voga. In order to see Voga, the exile is forced to dance for him in a skimpy metal bikini, not unlike the one Leia famously wore in Return of the Jedi. It's a weird inclusion, but it's also a way to lure Voga to sleep and then sneak in to steal goods from his storeroom, which the exile does. Later and fully clothed, Sirik is given assurances that Voga will sell fuel to Citadel Station from his reserves on Slayeron. Sirk will speak with Lieutenant Gren to work out the details, and it looks like the Exile is starting to rebuild the Republic and doing some good along the way. Alright, thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next episode, which will be in two weeks, we'll finally have that chat with Zazkael, Travel to the world where Tales of the Jedi began oh so long ago, and meet an old friend hiding out on Duxun. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm Ather10KD on Twitter. And I'm Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.